Hello, and welcome to Faking It, a special effects podcast about movie makeup and creature creation. My name is Gail Martin, and I'm a special effects fan and makeup artist. This week, we're going to launch into part one of a two-part series on the history of movie makeup. I use the word brief in the title loosely, as this topic turned out to be a fascinating rabbit hole, and it's going to require more than one episode to explore. To get started, I found a few early milestones in movie makeup history that are worth mentioning. So let's dive in. Early films were obviously black and white, but not all black and white film is created equal. The earliest type of film used in movies was called orthochromatic, That's a combination of the Greek word orthos, which means correct or upright, think braces, straightening teeth, and chromatic, which means color. This type of film was only blue or green sensitive and didn't pick up yellow-red wavelengths, which resulted in much lighter cool tones and much darker warm tones. The term orthochromasia is used in chemistry to describe a stain or a dye that doesn't change color when it binds to a target but I honestly have no idea what that means in relation to photography, film, or even chemistry for that matter. So if you have any answers, please reach out to me on Twitter at FakingItSFX. Anyway, to brighten up the warm red tones of their skin, actors applied blue-toned grease paint to their faces and painted their lips yellow. They also used dark eyeliner to ensure the actor's features were well-defined. However, because these were the early days of cinema, the products they used weren't resistant to sweat and smearing. Traditional theatrical makeup products also made the skin look cracked and cakey, an unfortunate side effect that ruined Dolores Costello's career. Fun fact, she was Drew Barrymore's grandmother. If you think you freak out when your concealer creases, just remember that it used to be much worse. And thankfully, we have much better products today, thanks to innovators like Max Factor. Founded by its namesake, a Polish beautician named Maximilian Faktorowicz, Max Factor created the first film-grade makeup product in 1914 in an effort to resolve these issues. It was called Supreme Grease Paint, and it was the first to be used in a screen test for the 1912 film Cleopatra, which I imagine happened as part of the product's development since the film came out two years prior to the release of the grease paint. Max Factor later went on to develop a 12-toned cream makeup for use with celluloid film that allowed more subtleties in the skin to show through the makeup, much better for those dramatic close-ups. Now let's fast forward to the 1920s when panchromatic film was on the rise, pan being another Greek word meaning all. This film was still black and white, but unlike orthochromatic film, it was sensitive to all wavelengths of visible light, not just blue and green and caused fewer color issues than its predecessor. This allowed Max Factor to get creative with his panchromatic makeup by producing it in various colors. Though Max died in 1938, he managed to spend his last year on Earth developing what could arguably be called his most innovative product. Unfortunately, his panchromatic makeup created a shiny finish that reflected nearby colors when filmed in Technicolor. His answer was a solid cake of makeup that when applied with a wet sponge, left the skin with a shine-free matte finish. Appropriately dubbed Pancake, actresses found it so light and wearable that they even started wearing it off screen. And finally, 
Max Factor also managed to add his own waterproof makeup to his legacy before shuffling off this mortal coil. Of course, Max Factor wasn't the only one who made a contribution to the development of movie makeup in his day. George Westmore was a hairdresser who noticed how shoddy actors' makeup was due to their lack of skill in applying it on themselves. So he created the Selig Polyscope Company in 1917, otherwise known as the very first movie makeup department. He drew on his experience as a hairdresser to make wigs and even invented lace wigs, which are still widely used today to create a realistic hairline. Unfortunately, Westmore met a tragic end by his own hands in 1931 when he committed suicide via mercury poisoning. We tend to think of poison as a means to a quick and easy death, but it took four days for the toxic metal to eat through his body. Yikes. All right, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves timeline-wise, so let's back up a bit, nine years to be exact, and discuss the first film on our list, Nosferatu. Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, was directed by Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau and released in 1922. Murnau dodged copyright laws by tweaking several details of Bram Stoker's vampiric vision. Not only was the story relocated from England to Germany, but many of the characters were renamed. Hence, Count Dracula became Count Orlok. And, luckily for the Count, Van Helsing wasn't invited to the party. Murnau also changed at least one characteristic of vampires in general. While Stoker allowed Dracula to venture out during the day, the sunlight weakening him only slightly, Murnau's Orlok immediately burst into flames upon contact with sunlight. Though this kept Orlok confined to his castle during the day, it was certainly in line with his pallid and decaying appearance. Count Orlok was brought to undead life by Max Schreck. I couldn't find a description of how his makeup was done, but after looking at pictures, it appears he wore a bald cap, ear tips, and possibly even a chin prosthetic. Alternatively, his nose and chin may have been altered with nose putty and his eyebrows enhanced with extra hair. And who can forget those finger extensions? These nascent makeup techniques may be simple, but the overall effect remains frightening even today. Count Orlok's makeup was designed by Albin Grau, as were the sets and costumes. Grau drew much of his inspiration from a classic horror story titled The Golem. Written by Gustav Merrick and illustrated by Hugo Steiner Prague, the 1914 serial contained 18 black and white illustrations that inspired Grau's design approach. Now, if we were to fast forward to 1931, Bela Lugosi's Dracula would saunter onto the silver screen with a seductive charm that couldn't possibly be further from Max Schreck's dusty and moldering creature. Schreck's iconic appearance and performance even inspired the film Shadow of the Vampire, which was released in the year 2000. Starring Willem Dafoe as Schreck and John Malkovich as Murnau, the film asked the question, what if Shrek's performance was so believable because he really was a vampire? Well, Roger Ebert certainly had an opinion. Quote, It is easier for me to believe Shrek was a vampire than he was an actor. Examine any photograph of him in the role and decide for yourself. Consider the rat-like face, the feral teeth, 
the bat ears, the sunken eyes, the fingernail claws that seem to have grown in the tomb. Makeup? He makes the word irrelevant. Before we continue, I should mention again that in the early days of cinema, actors typically did their own makeup. Normally, the results were lackluster, but unlike his fellow actors, Lon Chaney Sr. rose to the occasion when he played the Phantom in the 1925 version of Phantom of the Opera. That the direction is credited to Rupert Julian, a prolific contributor to the silent film era, Lon Chaney Sr. is occasionally mentioned as an uncredited director. He's known as the man of a thousand faces and once said the following, quote, as a man's face reveals much that is in his mind and heart, I attempt to show this by the makeup I use, end quote. Well, he did a bang up job. So much so that Bob Kane, the director of Batman, drew partial inspiration for the Joker's look from Cheney's phantom makeup. How Cheney created his phantom makeup is somewhat debated. One thing we know for sure is that he ran a wire from under his bald cap to the tip of his nose to give it an upturned appearance. Characters in the film can also be seen saying that the phantom has no nose, so this was clearly done to diminish the length of his nose and to make it look more skeletal. It was certainly worth it, despite the regular nosebleeds that Cheney battled while filming. Some sources say that he even used fish skin in his makeup somewhere, but I'm not really sure how. For his cheeks, he used cotton and collodion. The latter constricts the skin, creating a scarred appearance. And of course, black grease paint to darken the eyes. German expressionist Paul Lenny directed the 1928 film titled The Man Who Laughs. The story is set in the late 1600s and follows the tale of a young man named Gwynplaine. When he was just a boy, a man named Dr. Hardquinone disfigured his face by molding it surgically into an immovable grin. This doctor was called a compraccio, a word that Victor Hugo coined, which means child buyers in Spanish. He assaulted Gwynplaine in this way because his father was sentenced to death by Iron Maiden by King James II, and Gwynplaine was therefore the subject of ridicule as well. He escapes the Compraccio's clutches with a young blind girl named Dee, and goes on to find acceptance and a means to support himself as a vaudeville performer. The film is full of all the essentials, star-crossed love, a lost and found inheritance, a gold-digging seductress, and the happy ending that Victor Hugo didn't write in his novel, which the film was based upon. Typical. Though The Man Who Laughs is generally categorized as a horror movie due to the discomforting appearance of its lead actor, it's actually more of a melodrama and, quote, at times even a swashbuckler, end quote, according to Roger Ebert. Gwynplaine's frightening appearance was the creation of Jack Pierce, who made an applique strong enough to keep actor Conrad Veet's face in the shape of a permanent smile. The actor wore it well despite the bruising it caused. And it shouldn't be much of a surprise that Bob Kane found even more inspiration for the Joker in this film. 
But unlike the Joker, Gwynplaine wasn't laughing. His appearance didn't twist his conduct to match his manic smile. Instead, he felt unlovable despite being deeply loved by D, who said that, quote, God closed my eyes so that I could see only the real Gwynplaine, end quote. As Matt Singer put it in an article on IFC.com entitled Putty in Their Hands, quote, We fear meeting the Joker, but we fear becoming Gwynplaine, end quote. Three years after the release of The Man Who Laughs, Jack Pierce transformed Boris Karloff into the classic, flat-headed version of Frankenstein's monster that remains iconic today. To achieve this look, Pierce used a rubber skull cap, as well as spirit gum and cotton. It was fortunate for him that Karloff was willing to sit for long periods of time to have this makeup applied, because Bela Lugosi turned down the role just for that reason. Karloff even went the extra mile by working with Pierce for weeks to perfect the look. The illusion was complete when Pierce gave Karloff's skin a greenish tint rather than leaving him flesh-toned or painting him white to create a corpse-like gray color when filmed in black and white. I've always wondered why he's green in so many cartoons and illustrations, and now I know why. Jack Pierce went on to become the first makeup department head at Universal Studios and designed makeups for The Wolfman and The Mummy. He's also known for adding the widow's peak to Dracula's ensemble. The man lived a storied life, and I hope to dig into it more deeply in the future. The Wizard of Oz was the first film to use foam latex prosthetics extensively. In fact, makeup artist Jack Don was one of the first to use this technique to craft masks for both the Cowardly Lion and Scarecrow. However, because the technique was so new, it had at least one unfortunate side effect. Ray Bolger, the actor who played Scarecrow, walked away from the film with permanent lines around his mouth and his chin. For the Tin Man's costume, chocolate syrup was used for the oil that greased his joints. Food products are often used to simulate other substances in special effects makeup. Remember the shower scene from Hitchcock's Psycho? That was chocolate syrup too. Unfortunately for Jack Haley, who played Dorothy's metallic cohort, the aluminum in his face makeup caused lung issues and even an eye infection over the course of the film. Fortunately for Haley, the eye infection was corrected with surgery and didn't cause any permanent damage. Some sources said that mercury was used in his makeup and ultimately killed him, but that appears to be a myth. However, he did die of respiratory failure at the age of 67. Was his role in The Wizard of Oz to blame? We'll likely never know for sure. However, one definitively lethal special effects technique used in the film wasn't a myth. Industrial grade chrysotile asbestos was sprinkled over the actors to simulate snow. It was also used to fireproof both Scarecrow's costume and the Wicked Witch's broom. Now that's a horse of a different color. <laughs> Speaking of which, that horse that drew the carriage through the Emerald City? Four separate horses were used to create the color-changing effect. And to dodge the ASPCA's ban on dying animals? The equine actors were tinted with various pastes 
made from lemon, grape, and cherry jello powder instead. Our next film, Creature from the Black Lagoon, brings us into the 1950s. This 1954 film follows a group of scientists who discover the Gill Man, a sort of marine version of Bigfoot lurking in the Amazon. They try to capture him for scientific research, and, well, mayhem ensues. Makeup artists Bud Westmore, George Westmore's son, again, and Chris Mueller, along with designer Millicent Patrick, combined the features of various reptiles to bring the creature to life. Ben Chapman, the actor who played the creature, described the Gill Man suit in a 2000 interview. Quote, The costume was made out of foam rubber, and there was a latex one-piece body stocking that I got into. Many pieces were stuck to that. It was very simply made. It's not like the high-tech stuff of today. And the costume wasn't very heavy because it was made out of foam rubber, and it took about two to three hours to get in and out of. End quote. Apparently, the suit was comfortable enough as long as Chapman was filming outdoors in the water. However, if he was on a soundstage, he'd need to be hosed off once in a while to avoid overheating. What a diva. Alright, let's conclude part one of our brief history of movie makeup with a couple of fun facts and an unanswered question. Frank Westmore, again, George Westmore's son, was charged with giving thousands of extras a ruddy bronze glow back in 1959 while filming The Ten Commandments. That job sounds hard enough even before you factor in the sweltering Egyptian heat they had to endure while filming on location. Some sources say he developed a spray painting technique that is still used today while others only mention the use of an airbrush combined with a custom-made foundation. Now, anyone who uses an airbrush will tell you that it's not the same as spray painting, so I'm not sure if there were two different techniques used or one that was inaccurately described. Either way, the airbrush started coming into use in the mid to late 50s, and it most definitely is still used by movie makeup artists and sculptors today. I hope you enjoyed this walk through the early days of cinematic makeup. In our next episode, we'll pick up right where we left off, in the 60s, when the real fun begins. In the meantime, you can find this podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. Please rate, comment, and subscribe, and I'll be happy to give you a shout out on the next episode. On that note, thanks to Ava White for following me on SoundCloud. Until next time, I'm Gail Martin, and this is Faking It.